Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. And today, what we're going to talk about is we are going to talk about Colleen Stan, better known as the girl in the box. Now, before we get started, I do want to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, This podcast does contain some graphic imagery that is definitely not suitable for children. So please, if you have children listening, uh, you might want to avoid listening to this at the time. The year is 1977, and 20-year-old Colleen Stan was traveling to surprise her friend Linda for her birthday. Colleen lived in Eugene, Oregon, which is a city that's just located a little south of Portland. Linda lives in Westwood, California, and that's about 400 miles away. So Colleen was going to drive there. As she got into her car to leave, the car wouldn't start. And she was very determined to get to Linda's house. So she decided instead that what she was going to do was she was going to hitchhike there. Now, remember, in the 1970s, hitchhiking was pretty common practice. It wasn't unusual to use this as a form of transportation if you did have to get somewhere. Now, Colleen made it down to Highway 5 near Red Bluff, California. Red Bluff was only about 80 miles or so away from her destination. So she was really, really close to Linda's. As she continued to hitchhike along Highway 5, Colleen had a young couple in a blue Dodge Colt pull over. According to Colleen, she said that they looked about her age and they even had a baby with them. Colleen told them where she was headed. They said they were heading the same way, so Colleen got into the car. The car was small. It was only a two-door, so Colleen had to kind of, you know, finagle herself into the back seat. She had to climb behind the front seat and get into the back seat. As they drove along, the couple started asking her questions about her name, where she was coming from, why she was headed to Westwood, etc. Now, these are typical questions, right, that you would expect someone to ask. Let's just have a general conversation. Later on, though, when Colleen looks back on this day, she realizes that these responses that she gave to the couple by telling them that she was heading to surprise a friend and no one really expected her anywhere that, you know, that was kind of a dead giveaway that, Hey, you know, no one, no one is expecting you anywhere. No one's going to miss you. Right. The couple pulled into a gas station to fill up. The man got out to pump gas and the woman took the baby and went inside to pay. Colleen had to use the restroom. So she too got out of the car. Now, while in a restroom, Colleen felt something nagging at her. A little voice was telling her, do not get back in this car. She couldn't understand why she felt this way. And, you know, this is something that we can all relate to, right? We know when our gut is trying to tell us something, when something's a little off. And it's not like it hits us over the top of the head. It's just this really small nagging feeling that tells us that maybe we shouldn't be doing the thing that we're thinking about doing. Colleen, of course, rationalized like we do as well and thought, this is crazy. This is a family with a baby. So Colleen went ahead and got back into the car. When she climbed back into the back seat, something was there that wasn't there before. 
It was a strange looking box made of plywood and it had metal hinges. She didn't really think much of it. A little further down the road, the couple told Colleen that they wanted to stop at some ice caves that they had heard about and they wouldn't be there for long. So as they're driving along looking for these ice caves, a dirt road appears alongside the highway. According to Colleen, the woman said, isn't that the road? And the man replied, oh yeah. They took this dirt road and they stopped the car near a small creek. The woman and the baby got out and they walked down to the creek, but Colleen didn't see where the man had gone. Before she knew what was happening, the man appeared right next to Colleen. He put a knife to her throat and he told her to put her hands above her head. He then grabbed her hands He handcuffed her, he blindfolded her, and he tied her ankles together. Feeling the knife against her throat, he asked her, Are you going to do what I say? Colleen responded with the only thing she could think of, which was, yes. I mean, what what in the world are you going to say in this kind of situation? He then unlatched the wooden box that had been now sitting next to Colleen in the back seat, and he put this over her head. Once it was in place, he latched it back up. Colleen would later find out that this box had a name. It was called a head box. It had been specifically constructed with a circular hole in the bottom that could be opened up to fit over someone's head. The inside of the box was insulated with foam rubber, and it was this foam rubber was so close to her face that it was hard for her to breathe. It was later discovered that this box was double-walled insulated and it weighed about 20 pounds. Inside the head box, here's Colleen, she's got this thing over her head. All the light was gone. All she could hear were just muffled sounds. So who is this couple? Well, the couple's names were Cameron and Janice Hooker. They had met in 1973 And according to documentation, both of them were pretty quiet and shy, but they seemed to connect with one another. As they continued to date, Cameron started to feel more comfortable and he began to open up to Janice about fantasies that he had had and he wanted to act them out with her. They would then head into the mountains and for the first time in her life, Janice was introduced to bondage by Cameron. Janice was 15. In 1975, Cameron and Janice went to Reno, Nevada and got married. Now for several years during their marriage, Cameron did practice bondage on Janice, but you know, Janice gave her consent to do this. As the bondage became more intense, Janice told Cameron that she wanted to have a child and she hoped that by becoming pregnant, that it would reduce some of the more painful bondage practices that she was being subjected to by Cameron. Cameron told Janice that, hey, you know, he'd really fantasized about practicing bondage on a girl that, quote, really couldn't say no. He then told Janice, hey, you know what? You can have a child if I can have my own slave. Now, to make her husband happy, And to assure that she would be left alone if she did get pregnant, Janice agreed. But there were rules that Cameron had to abide by. Cameron was not, under any circumstances, to engage in sexual intercourse with this, 
quote unquote slave. The hookers, now here's, they're back in the car and the hookers, they've got Colleen. She's all tied up. She has this box over her head. They didn't want their neighbors to see them bringing Colleen into the house. So what they did is they drove around until it was dark outside. And then once back at the house, Janice and the baby got out. They went inside. Cameron came around to get Colleen out of the car. He took the head box off, but he kept her blindfold on and her wrists tied together. He told her, hey, I'm taking you into the basement. Once inside the basement, Cameron made Colleen stand on a cooler while he removed the handcuffs. But what he did is he replaced these handcuffs with leather cuffs. He then took off all of her clothes and he hooked these leather cuffs into eye hooks that were already inserted into the ceiling. Once she was attached, Cameron kicked the cooler away and Colleen was left to hang by only her wrists. When Colleen started to cry out, because obviously it was very painful, and she and tried to find somewhere to put her feet... Cameron went ahead and he started whipping her. After about 15 minutes of this, Cameron put something sturdy underneath her. But the problem was it was only tall enough for Colleen to barely touch her toes on top of it. She then heard someone coming down the stairs. It was Janice. While Colleen hung there, Cameron and Janice had sex in front of Colleen. After Janice left... Cameron finally put enough support under her so that she could stand. He unhooked her from the eye hooks in the ceiling and he made her walk a few steps across the basement. She was then forced to lay down in a box that was about three feet high, but long enough to fit her body inside. Not comfortably, but she could fit her body inside. Cameron then attached her wrists to hooks that were already inside this box and proceeded to do the same with her ankles. Again, this head box was placed over her head. Colleen was still naked, and now she was trapped. She stayed inside this box the entire night. The next morning, Cameron returned to the basement. He took her out of the box, but he kept the head box on. He made her walk over to a homemade rack that he had created and he chained her wrists and ankles to this device's top and bottom corners. According to Colleen, Cameron said to her, go ahead and scream. I'll cut your vocal cords. I've done it before. Colleen remained chained to this rack the rest of the day. That night, both Janice and Cameron brought Colleen some food. The head box was taken off, but the blindfold stayed on. When Colleen couldn't finish the meal that they had brought for her, Cameron got really upset about this, so he hung her back up to the ceiling and he whipped her. Once he was done whipping her, Colleen finished her meal and she was again placed on the rack. Back in Eugene, Oregon, Colleen's roommate began to start began to grow pretty concerned. It had been five days since Colleen had been gone, and she didn't return when she told her roommate that she would. Her roommate thought, well, you know, maybe Colleen decided to visit her mom. Her mom lives in Riverside, California. Two days later, when Colleen still wasn't back, the roommate called Colleen's mom to see if she was there. When they realized that Colleen was missing and something was wrong, 
They called the police and they filed a missing persons report. In the meantime, Colleen's torture continued. Every night Cameron would come down into the basement with some kind of torture in mind. He'd first let her use the bedpan while he watched, and then he let her sit on the rack while she ate and drank something. Once she was done, he'd again hang her back up and he'd torture her. Now, Cameron, during this time, he had started to build yet another box. Now, this box was, it was much longer than the box he already had in the basement. And it too was about three feet tall, but this one was six and a half feet long and it had a lid that opened at the top. It was said to resemble a coffin. Even though this new box was a little larger, Colleen was still chained by her wrists and her ankles inside this new box. Her parents, Colleen's parents in the meantime, they were, God bless them, they were making the same road trip that Colleen did from Oregon to California, desperately trying to locate her. At the same time, another family was also looking for a loved one who had disappeared just 15 months before Colleen. Mary Elizabeth Marlies, as she was known, Spanicky, she disappeared from Chico, California. Now, Chico is just about 50 miles or so outside of Red Bluff. The day that Marlies disappeared, she and her fiancé had gotten into an argument at a local swap meet. Marlies walked away and she planned to walk home, but she never made it there. Of course, her fiancé was looked into as the culprit, but uh, he was soon cleared as a suspect. The Chico police, a private investigator hired by Marlies's family, and even the FBI couldn't locate Marlies. So her case went cold. One night, Cameron got Colleen out of the box and he took her to an upstairs bathroom where he filled the tub. Now, Colleen had her hands tied behind her back. Uh, duct tape was applied to her mouth and duct tape was added uh, across her blindfold. So her blindfold was taped to her face with this duct tape. Her legs were then tied to a broomstick so that she couldn't bend her knees. What Cameron did is he then shoved her face into the bathtub, and he kept her there until she stopped struggling. He would then pull her up, and he'd repeat the process all over again. According to court documents, he did this over 24 times, and he even took photographs of this. As time passed, Cameron would continue to play out his bondage fantasies on Colleen. He suspended her, he whipped her, he constricted her breathing, he tied her to this rack, he shocked her with electrical cords, and he even burned her pubic area with a heat lamp. It was estimated that Cameron hung Colleen just within the first few months and whipped her at least a hundred times. In October of 1977, now this is five months into Colleen's captivity, Cameron began building yet another torture device. He called this one the stretcher. Once Colleen was attached to the stretcher, it would stretch her arms and legs super tight. In January of 1978, and this is eight months, eight months into Colleen's captivity, Cameron began to tell Colleen about a group called, quote, The Company. 
This was a powerful worldwide organization that they bought and they sold sex slaves and they tortured those who tried to escape. People involved with the company, they were everywhere. They included some of their neighbors, some members of Cameron's family, even local policemen. He even told Colleen that the phones at his house were tapped by the company. Now, this was all made up, but Colleen didn't know that. Often, Cameron would bring up the company in order to scare Colleen. He would continuously tell her how dangerous they were, not only to Colleen, but also to Colleen's family. One night, while Cameron was looking through one of his many bondage magazines, he came across something called a slave contract. He thought it'd be a great idea to have a slave contract for Colleen to sign. Cameron had Janice type up the slave contract word for word, which she did. And this slave contract was known as, quote, the indenture. Now, once the contract was ready, Cameron took it downstairs to Colleen. Her blindfold was removed for the first time since she'd been kidnapped. According to Colleen, Cameron said, they know you're here. Colleen felt, I mean, seriously, she's thinking, oh my gosh, thank God, somebody knows I'm here. That's when Cameron told her that a representative from the company was upstairs waiting for Colleen to sign the slave contract. Now, Colleen didn't want to sign it and she initially refused But Cameron threatened that if she didn't, she'd be tortured to the point of death. Now, having already experienced months and months of what Cameron could do, Colleen reluctantly signed this contract. Janice signed as a witness. Cameron then went over all the rules of the contract. Colleen wasn't supposed to look either him or Janice in the face. She was always supposed to be looking down. Cameron had to be addressed as sir or master, and Janice had to be called ma'am. The bottom line of the contract was that Colleen was supposed to be obedient and do everything they said. If she wanted food or water, she had to make this, make this request on her freaking knees. The contract also gave Colleen a new name, K Powers, not K like spelled K-A-Y, but just the letter K. With this contract signed, all of a sudden the hookers started to allow Colleen some more freedom. They trusted her more, and because of this trust, she was let out of the box at night to do chores around the house. She did whatever they told her to do. Up to this point, Colleen had suffered torture, But her sexual abuse didn't start until after this contract had been signed because Cameron had told his wife Janice, hey, I'm not going to, I won't engage in sexual intercourse with Colleen. Cameron worked around this by raping Colleen vaginally and anally with different instruments. Now, the first time that Colleen was actually raped was in February of 1978, and this is nine months into her captivity. Cameron took Colleen up to his bedroom one night where he tied her up to his bed. Now at trial, Janice testified that it was actually her idea to bring Colleen up to their bed and to have Cameron have sex with her while Janice laid next to them both. Quote, I just asked him if he wanted to bring her upstairs and have sex with her. She had cuffs on her wrists and some tape on her mouth. Cameron tied her hands to hooks that were already on the headboard of the bed 
and he tied her feet to the bottom of the bed, and he laid down between Colleen and Janice. When Cameron proceeded to have sex with Colleen, Janice said she left the room in tears. Quote, I didn't like what was going on. She told Cameron she didn't like it and said, sorry, I can't do this. She then went into the bathroom and vomited. After this incident, Cameron would only torture Colleen in front of Janice, but it didn't mean he'd stopped raping her. Cameron would wait until Janice wasn't home, and then he'd commit the rapes. In April of 1978, this is now 11 months into Colleen's capture, the hookers moved to a single-wide mobile home in a more remote location. Because it was a mobile home with no basement, Cameron had to find a way to hide Colleen. The hookers owned a waterbed, so what Cameron decided to do was to build a pedestal for this waterbed. He then built yet another box for Colleen, and this one would actually fit underneath the waterbed, which would then be hidden by this pedestal. In this new box, Colleen could roll over, but that's all she could do. It would get so hot under this waterbed, so much so that she would start sweating profusely to the point where she became so dehydrated that she just eventually quit sweating altogether. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering how in the hell could someone possibly keep their sanity living like this, if you can even call it living? Colleen's response to this was the only thing that kept me sane was my faith. Now, just for the record, I don't know what size waterbed uh, this was that she was underneath. But even if it were, say, a queen-sized waterbed, the weight of the bed above Colleen would have been about 1,500 pounds. So imagine being stuck in a box under something every single night that weighs 1,500 pounds. Now, by this time, Colleen had been missing for about a year. So her family decided to hire a private investigator. When the PI couldn't find anything and the family still encouraged him, okay, keep looking, keep looking. He eventually just stopped taking their money because he was sure that Colleen was dead. It got to the point that because police were still active on the case, every time they came across a body, They would check it to see if it matched Colleen's dental records. Back in the box, inside the box, Colleen found that she could actually tell time just by what was happening above her. She knew when the hookers went to bed. She knew when they were having sex. And even when Janice gave birth to her second child in the same bed, Colleen heard it all. Now, just think about this for a minute. While Janice was in labor with her second child, there had to be someone there, a midwife or at least other family members, all these people in the room and a woman under the bed that no one knew about. It just blows your mind, doesn't it? Isn't that nuts? In 1979, about 23 months into Colleen's captivity, Cameron began forcing Colleen to help him build a dirt and cement quote unquote dungeon in a shed outside their mobile home. He wanted this dungeon so that he could keep other slaves there. Janice had testified at trial that, quote, Cameron was going to make more dungeons to be able to get more slaves. 
Janice would see Colleen digging dirt inside the shed and then placing the dirt in a bucket that Cameron would then hoist on a pulley and dump outside. If you're like me, you are infuriated that this whole entire time Janice knows what's going on, but she doesn't bother to contact anybody. She watches all of this happen. She knows it's wrong, but somewhere in her mind, she's justifying this behavior. One could argue, sure, that she was so petrified of what her husband would do to both of them or even their children, which is the reason why she never said anything. But this has been going on now for almost two years. What kind of mental block do you have to have to justify this? Early this same year, in 1979, Janice had actually gotten a night job. And what she would do is she'd leave for work after Cameron came home for the day. While Janice was gone, Cameron would actually let Colleen out of the box to fix his dinner and wash the dishes. One day, Janice took the hooker's two children to a birthday party. While they were gone, Cameron used this time to sodomize Colleen. This same year, according to court documents, Colleen was placed on the stretcher and forced to orally copulate Cameron. By 1980, Colleen was under the hooker's control now for three years. Colleen was allowed to do a few more things, like work outside in the garden. She was also allowed out with the hooker children. And if you're wondering how this could happen, the thing is, the hookers, what they did is they introduced Colleen to the neighbors as Kay, the live-in babysitter. According to Colleen, when she was with the children, she said, it was an absolute joy. I love those children. They made me realize that there is still good in the world. In June of 1980, Janice then got a day job. Now, this meant that both of the hookers would be gone during the day. They allowed Colleen to actually babysit the children while they were at work. During this time, Colleen didn't have to stay in the box. Instead, she would spend her nights sleeping in the back bathroom of the mobile home, chained to a toilet. And there are so many questions that run through my head with this. For instance, you know, mobile homes, they're not that big. Wouldn't the kids have been curious enough to at least once to check out other areas of the house You know, where did the kids think that Colleen was this whole time? She was known as their quote-unquote live-in babysitter after all. It kind of makes you wonder what the hookers told their own kids, doesn't it? Now, granted, one of them may have been too young to understand, but the other one had to be old enough. At one point, Cameron told his wife that he wanted to put Colleen back into the box. But uh, Janice instead, what she did is she quit her job so that this wouldn't happen. So there's at least a particle of sympathy for Colleen from Janice. Colleen was doing her absolute best to do whatever the hookers wanted and hoped that by doing so, she would somehow be allowed to contact her family. When Colleen finally did ask if she could contact them, Cameron actually agreed to this. One day, he drove Colleen to Chico, so that she could call her parents from a payphone. Along the way, Cameron coached Colleen, hey, stay very vague on this phone call. Just tell your family that you're okay and you're just staying with some people. As you might imagine, her family was overjoyed to hear from her. 
and to find out that she was even still alive. They believed, however, that Colleen had likely joined a commune that didn't want her to communicate with her family, so they didn't actually press her for much information. As time went on, and encouraged by the fact that Colleen was allowed to contact her family, Colleen did whatever she could to show the hookers that she was willing to do whatever they wanted in the hopes of one day actually visiting her family. So one day she asked if she could actually go see her family in person. Cameron told Colleen that what he would do is he would put in a request with the company to see if the company would allow it. Many weeks later, Cameron came back and said to Colleen that the company had approved it and he made this huge deal out of this because he said this is something they never do. He even told Colleen that he had to put up a $30,000 security deposit to cover the costs of the company watching Colleen and her family while she was visiting. According to court documents, Cameron, he decided to test Colleen's dedication to him about a week before the trip to see her parents. So what he did is he made Colleen place a gun in her mouth and pull the trigger. The gun was empty. Colleen, she was also instructed to tell the kids and the neighbors that she was leaving Cameron even went so far as to drive off with Colleen as if he were taking her to the bus station. But later on that night, what he did is he smuggled her back into the mobile home and he again put her in the box under the waterbed. It wasn't until March of 1981 that Cameron finally took Colleen to see her parents. On the way to their house, he told Colleen exactly what to say. That Cameron wasn't Cameron. He was her boyfriend named Michael that they were planning on getting married. He further told Colleen that the company was bugging her family's phones and watching the house, and that if she did anything, they'd come storming in and people would be hurt. He further told Colleen that, hey, along the way, we've got to stop at, stop at quote-unquote company headquarters in Sacramento so that the company could give her a lie detector test. Cameron pulled up to a building and he left a very nervous Colleen in the car, but he returned a short time later with the news that the company had waived the test requirements. Yeah, go figure. As you might imagine, Colleen's family was beyond elated to see her. They were concerned for her because she did appear to be wearing homemade clothes and she looked very thin. Colleen did as she was told. She introduced Cameron as Michael and said that he was her fiance. Colleen desperately wanted to tell her family what was happening, but she kept quiet because she was so afraid of what the company might do. She didn't want any of her family members to get hurt. Cameron then told Colleen's family that he had to attend a conference in San Diego, but that Colleen could stay until he returned a few days later. These quote-unquote few days ended up being the next morning. He returned early and he wouldn't leave Colleen's side and they left shortly after Cameron had shown up. Not long after this visit, Cameron started to fear that, hey, he'd given Colleen just a little too much freedom. Once they got back to Red Bluff, Cameron made Colleen climb back into the box underneath the waterbed. Now, according to Colleen, in one instance, when she was climbing back into the box, 
she noticed her purse had been propped up against the side of the box. But in front of her purse, there was a picture of another woman that appeared to be a school photo. In April of 1982, Janice had to have knee surgery. While Janice was in the hospital, Cameron again raped Colleen, but then he admitted to Janice what he'd been doing with Colleen, that he'd actually been having sexual intercourse with her. But to justify this, what he did was Cameron made Janice read portions of the Bible to him, knowing that Janice was religious and Janice was a regular churchgoer, which is even more incredible that she would allow this to go on. He noted passages that required wives and slaves to be submissive. He especially pointed out passages about Hagar, who happened to be a slave wife to Abraham. And this is important because Janice at times had even referred to herself as quote unquote Sarah, who was actually Abraham's wife. Cameron pointed out everything that had to do with slaves and wives and told her they both had to be totally submissive. He said she'd go to hell if she didn't obey him, and Janice believed him. Cameron then further said that he wanted to have an alternate night sex relationship with Janice and Colleen. Now, at this point, according to court documents, Janice literally asked her husband to, quote, just strangle her. She said in court, quote, I just couldn't take it anymore. He didn't choke me out completely. I didn't lose consciousness as I had on about six other occasions. In 1983, this dungeon that they had been working on forever was finally done. Cameron decided to put Colleen into this dungeon. She had been in the dungeon for about a week when one day there was this tremendous amount of rain, this rainfall. The hole that she was in began to fill with water. Janice was the one who took Colleen out of the hole and put her back in the box under the bed. So at this point, are we finally starting to see some kind of break in Janice? In 1984, this is a year later, Janice started taking Colleen out of the box when Cameron went to work. What they would do is they would study the Bible together. As they began to form a bond of sorts, Janice asked Cameron to, hey, please take it easy on Colleen. Cameron, in response, let Colleen again become the live-in babysitter Kay after she had been, quote-unquote, gone for three years. In May of 1984, Colleen was taken out of the box. She was told to take a shower and then to change her clothes. Janice then did her hair and her makeup, and Colleen was told that Janice was taking her to look for a job. She eventually did get a job working at a local hotel as a maid. More and more, Janice believed that they were all living in a sinful relationship, not a godly one, as Cameron had suggested to her. So one day, after Janice had taken Colleen to work, Janice decided to seek counseling from her pastor. The pastor advised that both women should leave the situation and leave it immediately. Janice then showed up at the motel where Colleen was working and told Colleen that they had to talk. Quote, I told her there was no company and that we needed to run away from Cameron. 
Colleen, of course, was absolutely devastated. I mean, she had believed the story about the company for years. Once she realized what Cameron had actually done to her, she became incredibly angry and then quit her job on the spot. She and Janice started talking about how they were going to get out of their situation. They went home that night, but they didn't tell Cameron what they planned to do. Quote, I was afraid he'd kill us, Janice said. The next morning, Cameron went to work, like always. Janice packed up the girls and Colleen, and they headed to Janice's parents' house, where Colleen was able to call her dad and ask him for bus fare to please come home. At this point, literally, her family probably would have hired a private plane to bring Colleen back. Janice then drove Colleen to the bus station and dropped her off. After Janice was gone and while Colleen waited for her bus, she decided to get on a payphone and call Cameron. She called him. She said, quote, I'm getting on the bus. I'm going home and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Once Colleen was home, she didn't want to break the spell. She felt freedom for the first time in years. And, you know, as you might imagine and can totally understand She didn't want to have to relive what had happened to her. She didn't even know who to trust, even the police. So she kept what happened to her a secret. Janice, however, in the meantime, what she did is she returned to Cameron just over a week after she had left him. Quote, everyone insisted that it was the right thing to do. I should just forgive him and go back. Now, this was August 17th. It wasn't until November 1st that Janice actually called the police. Now, this was three months after Colleen had returned home. When Janice arrived at the police station and sat down in front of Detective Al Shamblin, he could not believe that what he was hearing was true. Janice told him everything. She even told him that Cameron had first picked up this girl from Chico and tortured her to the point where she had died. They had rolled her up in a carpet, they drove her into the mountains, and they buried her. She then said that this girl's name was Marlise. She described how they had picked her up as she walked away from a swap meet, and then Janice further said that, hey, she could take them to the location of her body. Although they could never find Marlise's body, which meant that they couldn't pin a murder charge on Cameron, they still didn't have anything. The police had no case without Janice's testimony. So what they did is they agreed to offer Janice immunity if she would testify against Cameron. She agrees. Cameron is arrested and everything that Janice told the police could be backed up with physical evidence. Now it's unclear how Colleen became involved with the, with the case, but eventually she did tell the police everything she knew And she, too, agreed to testify against Cameron. In 1985, the trial began. As you might imagine, Janice and Colleen were the key witnesses. Admitted into evidence were over 100 pieces of physical evidence, including the head box, photographs of Colleen in bondage, a copy of the slavery contract, the waterbed pedestal and its concealed box, and the stretcher. Janice's testimony included several emotional outbursts, but Colleen's was flat and unemotional, according to court records. The prosecution had a psychologist come on who testified that 
Various factors led him to conclude that Colleen was coerced into remaining where she was and obeying Cameron. The way that she was abducted, suddenly and without warning, and then being isolated, he removed her clothes, didn't allow her to see daylight. He abused her, he controlled her food, her water, and when she went to the bathroom, he required her to ask permission for everything threatened her family, threatened to sell her to another captor who may treat her even worse, tortured her, getting her to sign the slave contract, and overall just establishing a new life pattern for her were all effective techniques to coerce a victim into giving up any resistance to their captor. It all created an atmosphere of total dependency. He further explained that information about these kinds of techniques were available in bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism literature, which Cameron obviously read on a regular basis. At the closure of the trial, the jury found Cameron Hooker guilty of various offenses, and it earned him 95 years in prison. Janice, as promised, was not charged. In 2015, Cameron came before a state parole board, but... His parole was denied because he was, quote, manipulative, he lacked remorse, and he was a danger to society. Now, in 2021, Cameron had earned enough, quote unquote, good credits to make him eligible for parole. But the county district attorney decided to have Hooker labeled, sought to have Hooker labeled a sexually violent predator. While he'd been officially paroled on the criminal case, he had to stay in prison during the whole sexually violent predator proceedings. As of June 2022, a San Mateo County Superior Court judge determined that there was in fact enough evidence to have a jury decide whether Cameron should receive this violent predator label. What will happen is he will return to court on September 14th, 2022, and that's as of this recording, to set a date for trial in which a jury would determine whether or not he should receive this label. Now, this is important because he has to stay in prison until they decide whether or not he is going to get this label. But in order for this label to be applied to him, he must also have a diagnosed mental disorder. If officials do prove that he is a sexually violent predator, he'll be moved to a locked state hospital where he'll have to complete a rigorous treatment program that in many cases can take 10 to 20 years to complete before the person is even considered for conditional release out of custody. Cameron is currently incarcerated in San Mateo County Jail with no bail status. As I researched this case and began to write about it, it dawned on me time and time again that as I would go through the timeline year by year, I reminded myself that for each of these years, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, Colleen was held captive and tortured repeatedly for as long as it's taken you to listen to this podcast. It is just but a fraction of what Colleen had to endure in captivity. 
If you have an opportunity to watch the Snapped episode entitled, quote, The Girl in the Box, I highly recommend it. I'll have links for you on the Beach House 34 Instagram page, along with links to other sources that were used in this story. In the episode, uh, Colleen talks personally about her years in captivity, and I was so impressed with how strong of a woman she is. She routinely talks about how her faith helped her through. Let's not also forget about Marlies, who didn't even live long enough to tell her story. But we can imagine what she too went through. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you all. You have no idea how much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.